The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. All right. Our first 15 and 60 on the Eastern Conference here, Mr. LaRue. And I think we'll just have to see how much we get through today. This first one for each of these teams is always, there's just so much information that, you know, if this ends up looking like it's a three-hour podcast, maybe we'll push some of it till tomorrow. But the goal, the goal, Danny, is to finish some of it. Of course, what's going to happen is if we do get it all done today, then whoever's team we only spent like six minutes on is probably going to complain. That's, <laughs> that's It's going to happen, but that's why we change the order each each time we do a conference, you know, whether it's forward and backwards and backwards and forwards or record, we change it up to try to make sure we give every team their just desserts. Also, a fair point of emphasis that if we've done a gamer on a team recently, we'll probably spend a little less time because we just spent, you know, 20 plus minutes talking about them. That isn't the case. Well, maybe we talked about the Hawks. I think that was early in the week, but we could start in Atlanta, the Hawks are now six and three and their net rating is above water plus 0.7, which is 13th in the NBA, 15th in offense and 17th in defense. Interesting after the last couple of years to see those. So even we'll see where, where things go, obviously from that point, Raptor and Elo, both in kind of the mid to high forties, 49 wins for Raptor 46 for Elo. Both of those projections come from 538. And the Raptor model is more optimistic at their chance of making the final eight. That's 86%. Whereas ELO, which is more how they've been playing, puts it at 74. So I'm going to present my thesis here and then I will try to support it. That despite being six and three, this feels very much like an average to maybe even below average team on both ends. Right now, you mentioned the net rating. Yes, they are six and three. They pulled one out in OT against the Pels, although they did control that game most of the way. Uh, They had a huge comeback and ended up blowing out the Knicks after being down 23 in the first half. They lost by 30 to the Raptors. We talked about that one earlier in the week. That's a big part of what's killing their net rating. But also their four and one start was compiled against the Rockets, Magic, Hornets, Pistons, and Pistons, followed up by losses to the Bucks and Raptors, beating the Knicks, beating the Pels. Both of those last two teams are quality wins i would say yeah. but and, and remember it was a big comeback win over the knicks yeah absolutely I, I did mention that another thing i want to mention as well is it is very early on here still but we are between 10 and you know 13 of the way through the season for some of these teams so we're going to be mentioning a lot of stats here and generally what you can take away from the stats and we'll try to elaborate on them as we go through of how much can you take away from this stat? how much predictive power does it has obviously just describing what happened is important for a stat sometimes though we don't necessarily expect that to continue and we'll note that as much as we can but generally the way to look at these stats is 
the more something is descriptive of play style, pace, how many threes you're taking, how often you get to the line, how often you're assisting on baskets, how many threes you're giving up, your overall net rating. Okay, that's uh, at, that one is starting to get uh, pretty close after this amount of, of time to having some signal there. Yeah, and that's from uh, uh, where, from yeah. sorry from Krishna Narsu did some uh, basically did some calibration did some work on this about when stats kind of become when the R squared gets high enough that it becomes interesting when you look at where things end up. So yeah, also where you're getting your shots on offense that's a, another one, and then interesting rebounding is a little bit less takes a few more games, and then really the shot making stuff that's what really takes a while to get some signal like we're not quite there and what krishna did he created this chart where he said how many games does it take to pass an r squared of 0.5 with the team's end of season numbers historically did this a couple of years ago so basically how many games before you could predict 50 percent of for the final number can be predicted by what we have so far so pace three-point attempt rate free throw rate assist percentage those all come out in the four to six game sample. You can be like, all right, we, we got something here. It's not for sure. It's not going to change, but we're starting to see something here. How many threes opponents are taking. And then even your win percentage and next rating. What that's in the seven to eight range. How often you're turning it over is about 10 true shooting percentage, two point percentage. That's in the 10 to 12 range, three point percentage and opponent three point percentage. Those are the most variable that takes 25 to 30 games maybe even a little bit more for you to get some real signal there. And you're probably, frankly, better off just going with the track record of your shooters on offense and just the league mean on defense if you're trying to predict what a team is going to do going forward from three-point range this early in the season, I would say, than to look at what they have already done so far. All right, let's talk a little Hawks here. I guess I'll start since I had that thesis with my idea for why I think they're not really looking that great so far. And as you noted, Raptor still likes them for the fifth seed in the East, 49 wins. ELO, maybe not quite as much. 86% chance of the playoffs for Raptor, 74% ELO. Yeah, I was, those numbers seem high to me right now. And part of that is the shooting luck that the Hawks are benefiting from defensively. Yeah, for sure. And so that's one of the things that teams generally do less to control. It takes longer to stabilize. And so Atlanta right now, the only one of the four defensive four factors going back to Dean Oliver, that they are above 20th in the league, 20th out of 30 teams, is opponent effective field goal percentage, which is the most important of the four factors. But generally speaking, it can it can there's a lot of variance that can happen, particularly when your opponents are shooting really badly from three, 33.3% right now for the Hawks on opponent three-point shooting. That is the second lowest tied with a couple other teams in the league. So you expect that to regress to the mean over the course. It, and for some teams, it doesn't. But generally speaking, that's why you want to do that. They've also given up the fourth lowest opponent shooting percentage on long twos. So both of those you expect just by virtue of how things have gone. And another way of putting this, Hawks are 20th in opponent location field goal percentage. That's basically based on the, based on where you're giving up shots. And then they're fifth in actual effective field goal percentage, which basically means opponents are making a lot less, fewer shots based on what you would expect based on where they're taking them. Generally speaking, my thought is that means they're giving up better shots and they're just not falling through nine games. Now, 
the biggest thing that you can affect defensively from a shooting perspective is opponent shots around the room. They are fourth there. They do have a couple of good rim protectors in Akongu and Capella. So that's something where I, I'm not sure I expect them to continue to be fourth in the NBA, allowing 60.7% shooting at the rim right now. But but importantly, they're giving up the second most shots at the rim as right. well. Yeah, so, so that, and I mean, it's great to allow a lower percentage at the rim for sure, but those are still higher value shots even if you're allowing a relatively low percentage to other teams compared to other shots that are available even if you're allowing 60.7 percent shooting at the rim if you're giving up a lot of shots there that's still better a better play for the opponent than shooting elsewhere on the floor and yeah as you noted they are only 25th in forcing turnovers that's even with DeJounte Murray he had one ridiculous game of five steals I think that was the Nick game and they're also 28th in the amount that they're fouling yeah. Right now, which that's not encouraging. And I don't think the return of Bogdan Bogdanovich is going to help that. And frankly, even with Bogdan out, you know, they've been pretty healthy aside from that. So there's, you can't, if you have one rotation player out, like that's probably going to be about where you are or even two most of the season. How about the offense? Anything of note stick out in their overall statistical profile there? They're not turning the ball over at all. And that yeah. can like be a, a crazy low amount. Yeah. 12% this year and if you want to compare that to the hawks last year they were at 12 percent, which led the league but normally speaking teams are a lot higher than that and that allows you even if you're not making every shot in the world to have a more efficient offense like right now so we talked about kind of the effective shooting of the of hawks opponents the hawks are 24th in three-point percentage they're 21st from floater range but they are pretty good ninth in shots at the rim Trey Young being an unbelievable passer, especially in transition, helps all that. But one of the most interesting stories for them offensively has been the difference between the Trey minutes and the DeJounte minutes. Yeah, it's a good thing they got DeJounte Murray uh, because if they didn't have him, they would have the worst net rating through <laughs> through nine games in NBA history. Obviously, that's reductive. That's not true. But they are 38.1 points per 100 possessions better with DeJounte Murray on the floor. They are a plus 10 when he's out there and a negative 28 when he is on the bench is, and that's, is that yeah. is that each of them solo or is that just DeJounte no on off? no it's just DeJounte on DeJounte off so the wow. Trey no DeJounte minutes have actually been pretty terrible as well Trey is about even on off but that's because he plays some uh, with DeJounte as well I mean not not because but the just statistically the, the correlation there uh so I, I don't expect that to continue I, I did have some concerns though and we dug into Trey's performance against the Raptors and the Raptors are a weird team to play against. We'll talk more about their game against the Bulls later on here because that was another just delectably Raptors game. But by, by the way, just so people have it, the Trey Young on DeJounte Murray off 186 possessions, negative 31.4 net rating, 13th percentile at offense, zeroth percentile on defense. Yeah. And a lot of that comes from that Raptors game when they just got completely smoked as well when Trey was on and DeJounte was off. But I do think there's something to the idea that things are harder for Trey right now. We'll talk a little bit more about him in a second. Uh, basically, it's just shot making from every area has been his problem compared to past years. And I think some of that will normalize. But also, he's used to having enough shooting around him, real spread pick and roll. And these guys have not really been able to make shots very well. They're at the bottom of the league in making three-pointers, and they are taking the 29th most... That is also the same as the second fewest three-pointers right now as a percentage of their shots. That is not where you want to be 
with two great passers like this, they just uh, either they're taking a lot of mid rangers or guys aren't spacing out or the offense isn't aligned that or you know maybe Trey and Dejounte are too focused on the mid range as well. But Trey certainly loves to set up three pointers. Back to just the individual Trey and Dejounte thing. Dejounte is taking a lot more threes and he's hitting 36 percent of them. Uh, he is now at four catch and shoot threes per game. 39% on just those catch and shoots. That's up from 2.5 a year ago. So he is playing off the ball a little bit more by that measure. And then Trey is at two catch and shoot threes per game up from one per game last year. He's only hitting 26% on those. Obviously that's way early. The, the bigger takeaway is just the number there rather than the percentage. DeJounte's true shooting percentage is still in that 54% range. They always seems to be in because he never gets the line. And also his percentage of shots at the rim have declined from 21% to 14% of his shots, uh, although he is making a very nice percentage of those, but that's a, a very low number. He, he already struggled to get to the room in the line in, in San Antonio, and that has not changed, and in some cases it's gotten worse as well. And for Trey, yeah, he's just, his two-point long jump shooting, where his isolation game was so good last year, hitting like 50%, now he's in the 20s this year on those. The bit, my biggest concern about Trey coming into the year in addition to this not having enough shooting around him aspect was, well, what if that 38% he hit from three was a little bit of an outlier last year? He's at 30% right now. Again, no reason to freak out, but also that was higher than you might expect. He takes some very difficult threes. His percentage of shots as threes is also down so far as finishing at the rim percentage wise is also down. So yeah, I, I just, I look at this team and I'm just not sure what it is that they're going to do so well. You know, you have guys like John Collins. He's been below his usual efficiency. Capella kind of, he just gets a lot of tips on the offensive glass. And like, he's kind of got that big guy. who doesn't catch passes and finish that well. Takes some bad hook shots, terrible free throw shooter. So he's not as efficient as you would hope he should be. You know, DeAndre Hunter has been great. Justin Holiday might just be done at this point. Like he's really struggling to shoot the ball. Uh, he's still a reliable defender and never gets hurt. See, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I like these guys. They have to play better than they have played so far to reach the projections that people have for them. Like I do not. Yeah, they're six and three, but I don't think they've been playing well. So it's funny because I'm concerned about them as well. But for me, it's more on the defensive end. Like I just sure. When I yeah, yeah, like, we didn't even really talk about that. But yeah. but that was always going to be the case. To it was, me, but, right? but like I, yeah. I mean, they're they're in some ways like I've made the comparison before the idea that they're they're parallel to an extent of the Blazers where it's like their offense is going to be good. And yeah, they're 15th right now. I think they'll be fine. Fine. Maybe I, not. Elite, I, but I don't know. See, that's that's still my bigger concern because I, I just saw I always saw a ceiling on the defense and I was like skeptical of the offense. And yeah. so far it's fallen in failed in the exact same ways. I mean, you know, obviously it hasn't been terrible. It's 11th, but like, you know, they're, they're not going up against a murderer's row quite yet in terms of the schedule. Uh, but it, like in terms of just the math stuff, where they're taking their shots, that's all of those, the low three point percent. I mean, that's a really bad combination to not be taking any threes and not making them right. Like a lot of times you'll see these teams that don't shoot that many, at least they shoot a good percentage and they're not even doing that. So that's sorry to interrupt you there, but I, I was, it's the offense where I'm like, I wasn't sure about the offense, the defense. I'm just like, I mean, how are they supposed to be good, honestly? Yeah, I mean, because, but yeah, so the the parallel with the Blazers is like the if the if the offense is good, and you're you're right that they don't have the track record that Portland does. Then, like, so the year that they made that they made a real run, they were 16th in defense. Every other year of this kind of iteration, they've been in the bottom five. And yeah. so, I mean, I think they have the personnel to be average on defense, but I think they are just based on the shooting 
luck aspect. Like they're headed towards below average right now because yeah. they're bad in the other. Well, and also like the games I've watched of them. And again, we're dealing with a smaller sample than even the small sample, of the full season. Like they've given up a lot of good shots. Like, I mean, I remember I watched some of that lost the bucks, watched the whole game against the Raptors. And then I think it was, it might've just been bad luck, but I think I watched part of that Charlotte game and it was just like, ah. it, it was bad luck that you had to watch the game. Well, of course, but Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences, hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz, find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door free of charge it's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home you're like well how should i order this if i can't sleep I'm like yeah you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do i take my shoes off do i leave my shoes on but then my feet kind of hang off the bed because i don't want to put my shoes on the bed and is it weird that i'm laying here for more than 30 seconds you can't tell anything under those circumstances you might as well just order it get it sent to your house get that hundred night trial they're 10 to 15 year warranty depending on the model and there's never been a better time to try a helix sleep mattress because they are offering 20 percent off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace easier to slash capspace we talk about it all the time here on the program that's helixsleep.com slash capspace this is their best offer yet i can attest to that since i've been working with them for nine years and it won't last long with helix better sleep starts now don't forget that slash capspace url to let them know that you came from us Man, I just love American Giant. Just an amazing clothing company. I was reminded again of how much I love it when I drove from California to Montana over the All-Star break. And you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold, particularly when it starts off warm in the Bay and then we get into some really cold areas. You're like, well, I don't want to wear like my jacket in the car, but then I get out to fill gas. I'm going to be freezing, but the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm, it's not too hot as well. So I was able to wear it in the car, not be too hot, step out of the car and still be warm enough when I was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that I didn't feel like I needed my jacket, even when it was cold outside. These things are amazingly durable. I proposed to my wife wearing an American Giant hoodie in the Grand Canyon almost seven years ago. I still own that same hoodie. I still wear it constantly. And American Giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing, like their premium Slub Crew tee, the No BS High Rise Pant, the Slim Roughneck Pant, featured in Giant Magazine, Issue 2. Every American Giant piece is made in America and designed to last no exceptions, and it provides year-round comfort. So find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use that finisher code CAPSPACE at checkout. Use remember, we talk about CAPSPACE all the time. 
time here in the room. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us. Let's let's move on to the Boston Celtics. But by the way, that was 18 minutes of recording time. Yes. Um, let, let's move on to the Boston Celtics. The reigning Eastern Conference champions are six and three and have about a plus four net rating, which is good for seventh in the NBA. And as we may have expected, they're first in one of the two ends of the four and they're 20th in the other, but it's first in offense and 20th in defense. We'll talk about that in just a second. Um, 538's models both put the Celtics as the number two seed with 55 wins and give them an identical 97% chance of making the final eight. Yeah, the final eight in the East, uh, of course. Uh, And yeah, they have this number one offense, 20th on defense. I hypothesized before I looked at it that, oh, you know what it probably is? Like, hey, they don't have any backup centers. Like a a couple of games I saw, like it didn't go great with Noah Vonley out there and now they're playing Luke Cornett and like, you know, how good can he be? And are are you really going to be able to defend with Grant Williams at center? And oh no, no, it is not the bench at all uh, in terms of at least what their performance has been so far with the the raw numbers. I mean, one way to put this is, well, I guess actually the the normal, like what we think we thought of as the traditional starting lineup has defended well, but a lot of the other iterations have had some real struggles. Yeah, they they have. uh, I mean, I think, but where I wanted to start is just, that they some of the crazy net rating differentials like with Cornette on the floor only 73 minutes 17 points per 100 better Sam Hauser on the floor 29.7 points per 100 better and that's a a huge difference on both ends that's mostly shooting luck at at this point the team is shooting 11 percent better from three when Hauser is on now part of that's because he's been shooting the shit out of the ball but opponents also shoot 11 percent worse from three when he's on so that's I'm not going to go ahead and, and give credit to him for that. And also Derek White will play some with the bench and uh, opponents are shooting 9.4% worse at the rim when he's in the game. And opponents are 17 to 28 against him at the rim, which, you know, like 60%, but a, he's a guard. That's actually worse than it's been for him in the past. Like I think he was 53% last year, but here's the crazy thing. Like he's challenged the third most shots at the rim on the team. And he's, basically like their point guard right like that's pretty insane and part of that is because they do as much switching as they do but of course part of how they can get away with that is Derek White coming over and making plays at the rim and he just has incredible rim protecting instincts I mean he's not it's not only like shot blocking but he really just he gets his chest on a guys he jumps he it's just you know he's not like some unbelievable athlete he's a good athlete for his size but it's just it, the instincts and just wanting to do that and believing that he can do that at his size offensively what sticks out in terms of their top line numbers here i think the, i talked about this a fair amount with jared weiss when i had him on real gm radio earlier in the week but they're getting to the line a ton like boston so far on the season third in free throw attempt rate and that is something that actually typically stabilizes around now and they were 12th last year 22nd the year before that it's been a big part of Tatum's ridiculous efficiency and they have good free throw shooters. So if they can actually get there and they're doing that without Robert Williams and everything else, like that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Tatum completely ridiculous so far, 66% true shooting on 31 usage. And I expected him to just have like some crazy PR, which I I realize people don't like PR, but I, I think it's just a good calibrator of how crazy is your usage plus efficiency. And then just the, your other box score stats particularly for perimeter guys. And that's only good for a 27 PR, which is not 
granted we're early here but this top nine guys in pr what these guys are doing is ridiculous Giannis has the lowest true shooting percentage among them at 61 percent every one of these guys except Jokic, is over 30 usage and Jokic has 70 percent true shooting plus all the assists and rebounding that he does as well so there's guys like Ja, Dame Lillard, though he's only played five games, is up there. Steph Curry. I mean, you just have all these guys who are like well over 60% true shooting. You know, uh, Luca is, is in that mix too. And 30 usage or well over that. It, it's been a, a pretty ridiculous start to the season for a, a lot of these guys. And Tatum uh, being among those uh, is really exciting in terms of how he's getting there. 38% from three. He struggled from three early last year but he's largely been in the high 30s most of his career incredible finishing around the rim 78 percent and on long twos he's at 53 percent so nothing like crazy crazy unsustainable there like he's not gonna shoot 78 percent at the rim all season i would guess it if you look at his history he's been in the low 70s the last couple of years and really the long twos as well uh but he's taking fewer long twos than he had been in the past so and then getting to the foul line a ton. As you mentioned, they are among the lead leaders in getting the line. The other aspect of their offense that I think has been really impressive and is a difference in terms of style of play from previously, they are eighth in drives per game this season. That's a, a mild increase. Last year, they were 13th. However, a year ago, they were 12th in field goal percentage on drives. This year, they are fourth. They shoot 53% on drives. And that's the impact of Malcolm Brogdon. He is, in limited minutes, 12 drives per game, leading the team. Tatum and Brown are both around 10. And Brogdon is shooting a really good 57% on drives. So he they brought him in to bring that attacking element. And it's not the type of driving that you'll see from a lot of guys where he's dominating the ball, where he's you know, putting guys in the mix, or, or like getting a matchup and attacking. He just is back to playing more the way he played with the Bucks, but throwing in as well some of the ability that he gained as a, a league guy in Indiana, where he's just catching the ball against a slightly tilted defense and just blowing by guys and getting right to the corner of the backboard. So that's looked really, really good. And he's added some playmaking ability as well. I still... I think it'll depend on who the matchup is, whether he should be in the closing lineup or not. But he's been giving them exactly the element that they needed. They really lacked against Golden State of someone who could attack off the dribble, get all the way to the basket with some speed and aggressiveness. And it's looked really good for them so far. Do you have anything else on the on the Celtics or should we move on to the Brooklyn Nets? Uh, I suppose. Brooklyn, four and six on the season, though we'll talk about how that's a whole lot rosier than it was a bit ago. Negative uh, 1.1 net rating is 18th in the league. They're 14th in offense, 23rd in defense. Both Raptor and Elo, low 40s, 42 and 40 respectively, gives them between a 50 and 60% chance of making the playoffs. And we do have to talk about Kyrie Irving again. He is serving a suspension that is no fewer than five games, but he, they gave him a set of, I believe it was six benchmarks that he'll have to clear. And we will have to see on all that. And it looks like his time in Brooklyn I, is going. I, I to guess we should say what those benchmarks are, since they since it's been been reported. Uh, it is he has to issue an apology, condemn the harsh, harmful and false content, and make clear he does not have anti-Jewish beliefs. He has to live up to what he said he would do in that anti-defamation league statement, including making this five hundred thousand dollar donation. He has to complete sensitivity training. He has to complete anti-Semitic and anti-hate training. 
He has to meet with the Anti-Defamation League and Jewish community leaders. And after doing one through five, he has to meet with Joe Sai, who it was reported that Irving would not return Sai's text messages and everything had to be done through uh, his agent and stepmother. And he has to demonstrate the lessons learned and that the gravity of the harm caused in the situation is understood and provide assurances that this type of behavior will not be repeated. Surely this is straight from a letter that was sent to him and his representation in concert with the suspension. Many have posited that Irving will not play for the Nets again. He did at least finally issue what I would consider to be a fully acceptable apology. Uh, he still didn't quite get to totally disavowing the movie, but uh, he provided some explanation at least that he was defensive because of being turned anti-Semitic and that's why he didn't apologize earlier. And, uh, you know, but he, there, there is a little trouble that he might actually believe a lot of this shit still. Uh, so that's, and he's been willing to stand in his beliefs before. So I don't know. I, I wanted to just get all that out there just because it's incumbent upon us to say it. It's news, but you are going to continue reacting to this whole saga. I don't know that I need to continue reacting to this whole saga, but <laughs> what what has been notable for Brooklyn is so they're dealing not only with the team initiated absence of Kyrie Irving, but also Ben Simmons has now missed four straight games due to left knee soreness. And it seems likely that he's going to miss a fifth yeah, when he got he actually got upgraded to questionable for oh good tomorrow okay so Dallas. that's so that's a little bit better with, with this left knee soreness and so i mean brooklyn was one and five they had that loss at home to indiana shortly before halloween and you're like oh man like this could this could really go off the rails and then they they split the next two and then Kyrie got suspended and you're like oh where's it gonna go from here and then katie only of their three highest profile players they absolutely crushed the Washington Wizards on Friday in D.C. and then get a more narrow win in Charlotte the next day. Yeah, 98-94 against a very shorthanded Hornets team, although they did get Terry Rozier back. We'll talk about that in a second. But yeah, KD came out and just completely crushed uh, his hometown Wizards and really, I think, sent at least a little bit of a message. KD, for his part, by the way, appeared to not really see what the big deal was with what Kyrie did. He wants to just play basketball. That's that's all K Katie wants to do is play basketball. Unfortunately, he doesn't really understand how to make it only about the basketball uh, in his career. And yeah, I'm sure he'd love it if uh, nobody cared about what Kyrie said and everyone could just go on playing basketball. But uh, unfortunately, that's uh, not something he has the luxury of. And there definitely have been a, a pretty, you know, CJ McCollum had uh, some statements as the head of the MBPA that I, I, I thought were good. And that there have been a few notes in certain quarters of just like how damaging these comments were but it also seems like you know, again there's not a lot of jewish <laughs> nba players so you know this is not something that's forefront among them same as like the play that people in hong kong is not forefront in their minds and i i understand that there are plenty of causes that are going on in the world and plenty of injustices that i don't know that much about or don't care enough about like what you're going to care about in terms of activism is is a personal decision but I do wish there was a little bit more education on this issue. KD th did at least then clarify by Twitter that no, he's not anti-Semitic. Like he doesn't endorse any of that stuff, uh, et cetera. But uh, I'm guessing in my heart of hearts, or, or I'm guessing that in his heart of hearts, he probably doesn't really care that much. Back to basketball, the on-off with Ben Simmons, they are 6.6 .6 points per 100 possessions worse with him on the floor on offense. 
13.6 worse on defense. Disturbingly, opponent's offensive rebound percentage is 7.4% better with him on the floor. Now, they have played the Raptors. They have played the Nets. They have played the Pelicans. Or, I'm sorry, not the Nets. The, the, uh, the Raptors, and the, the Pels, and the Grizzlies. Yeah, thank you. We did that game. I should remember it. Uh, when Simmons was active. So, that's probably skewing that numbers maybe more. But you would hope that Simmons at, as a 6'10", ostensible point guard, could help there. What about when they played Simmons at center? They didn't get to that too much. It seemed like after the Grizzlies game, Steve Nash decided that's what they're, where they were going to go. Uh, they're basically even, but 120 on offense, 120 on defense. So the defense, as expected, not very good. Uh, also worrisome that the team shoots far fewer threes with Ben Simmons on the floor, 4% fewer of their shots. Uh, part of that, again, is who he's being replaced by. It's Joe Harris. It's Patty Mills in the game when he's not. So that's worth con- considering. Uh, their own field goal shooting, however, at the rim is much worse with him out there. They shoot 6% worse at the rim. And that, I would say, is number one. Well, he's not shooting at the rim or making any shots. And number two, he's often been out there with the center and the spacing has been really compacted and so it definitely, there are a lot of reasons to disagree why it wasn't working with Ben Simmons. And those are things that, again, you would think correlate well with the things that he just, A, inherently because of the type of player that he is, not taking shots from the outside but B, and compacting the spacing, but B then just that not only has he been the play, type of player that he is, but he's been a very poor version of that player so far. So obviously for them to do anything he's going to need to play better and uh yeah i don't know what else is there to say about these guys we'll have to keep an eye on brooklyn's rim protection because they are blocking the most shots in the league eight and a half per game which is really really high but opponents are getting to the rim a lot ninth in opponent rim frequency and they're actually making a fair amount of shots they're blocking eight and a half but opponents are have the 10th highest rim field goal percentage in the league yeah and part of that is when you're giving up a ton of offensive rebounds then you're just allowing more shots at sure. the rim it's not it's not simply just driving to the basket and and getting rim protection in position so i mean there, it does it would be interesting to just kind of see kd playing as a heliocentric guy with a really spread floor i don't know how much we're going to get a chance to see that or maybe even just to play with nick claxton at center and then three other shooters but they're also a little bit light at, on shooting as well at this point you, you got to get into like a david duke or Simmons, Royce O'Neal is only okay shooting the ball. Joe Harris on a minute's limit. Curry's going to be on a minute's limit. So it does seem like, this feels like a little bit of a dead cat bounce, even if KD deserves some credit for coming out with and leading them to these two wins. Again, these are not like a murderer's row of opponents either. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because 
all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly because when you go somewhere else you're not going to get something that's made for you so why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you and not only does indochino have the suits that made them famous but now they've got everything blazers pants women's wear outerwear designed and made for you hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from european wools linen cottons tons of colors tons of patterns you can customize things like the lapel the vents the pockets and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style level up your game with indochino go to indochino.com use the code capspace user capspace we talk about all the time here on the program you get 10 percent off any purchase of 399 dollars or more that's 10 percent off at indochino i-n-d-o-c-h-i-n-o indochino.com and don't forget that capspace code to let them know that you came from us Speaking of that, murderers are of opponents. The Charlotte Hornets were a field goal story early on. Now, however, they fall into three and seven. Right, and that includes losses in their last four games and six of their last seven, the only win being an overtime victory at home against the Golden State Warriors, who can't win a road game to save their lives. So overall, the Hornets three and seven, 25th in net rating at negative 5.3 per 100 possessions, 27th in offense, 13th in defense, and Raptor 37 wins, ELO 38, which would put them 10th in the East both ways, and they have a 30% chance of making the like making the eight team playoffs in the East and 38% chance per ELO. On the kind of injury front, Terry Rozier did make his return in their eventual loss to the Brooklyn Nets that we allude, that we mentioned briefly in Brooklyn's section. Gordon Hayward has now missed two straight with a left shoulder injury. LaMelo Ball, good news per Clifford, is that he is, quote, extremely close to returning. The Hornets are apparently being cautious, so that's good for them. They A, they should be cautious, and B, like, good that LaMelo Ball could be close to returning. This will be a big week for the for the Hornets because they have, they have a couple home games, and then they start a florida road trip two games against the heat one game against the magic and then the the kind of the saga of cody martin continues so cody martin had left knee tendinopathy and missed basically the whole preseason he came back really towards the end came back for a couple days played in i think i want to say two games i might i might not have the number of that perfectly then he played one minute of their season opener checked out with a left quad issue so same leg but not ostensibly the same issue and has not played since that they the Hornets actually it's one of the weird things like they do have a number of capable kind of forward sized guys, but they were expecting Cody Martin to be a part and they've been missing Rozier and Hayward and all that type of stuff. So that's been a real challenge for Charlotte. Something I wanted to look into just briefly because partially you know you're opening up these minutes in the front court with the guys who were out, including however we're going to classify Miles Bridges and Jalen McDaniels right now. Still, you know, not playing a a huge role on this Hornets team overall. You know, so last year, McDaniels played 16 minutes a game. Right now, through 10 games, 26, including one start. I think he started in place of Gordon Hayward. And McDaniels, 40% on six and a half threes per 36 minutes. That's that's pretty good. And actually, mostly in line with what he did last year, which was 38% on four and a half per 36 minutes and you know we've made more of them than the year before but 
what's a little bit concerning with McDaniel's considering how, you know, how physically talented he is, is you, you hope, okay, well, you know, if you're shooting that kind of shooting threes at a respectable volume, which was a little higher that he'd be an efficient overall player. And he was last year, but McDaniel's so far is only converting 41% of his twos. And that's not good enough to be even close to league average efficiency, considering McDaniel's doesn't get to the line at all. It doesn't really do any of those other things. So, I've been optimistic before that not as extreme as his brother Jaden, who is starting for the Wolves, that McDaniels could be that Jalen McDaniels could be a like a long term starter. This is still only his age 25 season, but I do kind of want to see how it works out. He was below, you know, he's negative in, in EPM estimated plus minus last year, um, but not too far below the kind of median for his position. So I. I don't know. I like parts of it. I feel a little bit optimistic. I hoped that this opportunity, you know, that he could really blossom in it. And that hasn't quite happened yet, but still stuff to like. Yeah. And I think some of that struggle from two is based on just having to do a little bit more than you would have liked. He's got 10 pick and roll ball handler possessions. That's been really bad. He's been the ball handler in transition. That's been pretty ugly. He's turned it over a lot there as well. So there, there are some little things that because it's spot up, but as you mentioned, it has been really effective if he can just get back to focusing more on that, finding guys to a little bit better of spacing, get some cuts, get set up a little bit more at the basket, that that efficiency will improve. Where's he at in usage again? McDaniels is at 17 usage, which is actually his career high by one-tenth of 1% over two years ago. He was at 15-3 last year. Uh, Another thing that is impressive for the Hornets is that 13th in defense. Now they haven't had the same personnel that we'd expect. And actually I think the likes of Nick Richards, Dennis Smith Jr. at Hollinger has been talking up his defense as being awesome. And unfortunately he had to leave after seven minutes of their last game, just as Rozier is coming back. And another thing where it just, man, this guy's finally getting a break of, of health and playing well. And then he gets injured, but he's, it shouldn't be a long-term thing. He's apparently questionable for Monday. Uh, but so still be 13th in defense, I think is well above where a lot of people would have had them. They are leading the NBA, allowing only 10.1 fast break points per game. And that's never been my absolute favorite way of measuring this stuff because it is kind of subjective. I think they're actually too stingy with what qualifies as a fast break, but some scores might be different in some arenas than others. But that is still part of how they've remained respectable. The next highest is OKC at 11.2 per game. Cleaning the glass, though, has them at 17th in the percentage of possessions allowed in transition, which is 16% of possessions. But they are fifth in the opponent's offensive rating in transition. And I don't think that's particularly sustainable. It's one of those things where if you're giving up the transition, the opponent is either going to take a good shot or they'll back it out and run some more offense if there's nothing there. I don't think there's much to be said for the idea of, hey, we're giving up a lot of transition, but we're making the opponent take bad shots in transition. Uh, that's not something that I think really exists. Now, sometimes if you don't, if you're pretty good in avoiding opponent transition, then if you give up a pick six on offense, something that would provide a higher percentage of your overall transition possessions. Maybe you allow higher transition points per possession. But in any event, I don't think that there's anything particularly sustainable about Charlotte's approach where they're going to allow low points per possession in transition. I think it's a very volatile stat. So if that's what their defense is relying on the most, we could see a possible regression there. Yeah, that's definitely uh, a possibility. Yeah. Uh, and anything else on them or should we move on to the... Yeah, well, so no, we do have to say 
that uh, Miles Bridges has pled guilty. Or, yeah, I'm sorry, right. not pled guilty. Uh, he's pleaded no contest. contest. So uh, he is accepting the punishment and conviction without formally admitting guilt. Uh, for those who know, he was accused of assaulting his then-girlfriend in front of their two children. I guess that was actually back in May that that happened. It just came out a couple of days before free agency, which perhaps that was strategic. Uh, but there were initially three felony charges against Bridges. He pleaded not guilty and... Those charges were a felony count of injuring a child's parent and two felony counts of child abuse under circumstances or conditions likely to cause great bodily injury or death. All that we knew about the second part, obviously there are the horrific photos that uh, his then girlfriend publicized on social media uh, of her own injuries. But uh, all we know is that the children were present for the alleged assault. There's no further specification of exactly what happens. Uh, so he is going to avoid jail time, three years probation has to do a bunch of other stuff, uh, as well that would not prevent him from playing NBA basketball. What might prevent him from playing NBA basketball though, is that now that he has pleaded no contest under the corrective or collective barring agreement, he can be suspended. And this will be a really interesting one for the league. Number one, he's not under contract anywhere. That doesn't necessarily affect anything. He just is going to get the suspension that he would have gotten if he were in the league and any team that signs him will be informed that he would be facing such a suspension i'm sure that will come out as to what that's going to be and you know i mean i i think the longest like for example darren collison got eight games and we don't know exactly what he did how bad those injuries were there is this additional component here of the child aspect that he was charged with but he did not plead guilty to that aspect he he pled no contest to one felony domestic violence charge and the cba you can't punish someone until there had it has been adjudicated in a court of law is much different from the nfl and i'm guessing as well that the punishment is has to be based on i mean at least when you get in front of an arbitrator of what you actually were convicted of or pled no contest slash guilty to rather than the league doing its own investigation and finding out what actually happened like it's i think in the nba it's just going to be based on here's what the court of law determined or or what the perpetrator accepted so i i have a feeling unless the league wants to really turn over a new leaf here that this is going to be a shorter suspension than a lot of people suspect now there may be an effective suspension that's a lot longer with him just being toxic and i hope that that's the case given the conduct that he engaged in but i think people are going to be like wait what because i think the longest domestic violence suspension i can remember was like right after the ray rice thing the nba kind of got tough on this and they suspended jeff taylor for i think it was like 25 games he actually was a hornet at the time I think that people will would consider 25 games for this to be nowhere near enough. Would you agree? Just yeah, I think that would be the that would be the most common reaction were that to happen. Also, just from Bridges' standpoint, again, I thought not signing the qualifying offer when they could have, and we'll see what ends up happening. Maybe I'll be wrong about this, but not signing the qualifying offer from a business perspective was just a fail by his agent. Now you can't unilaterally get yourself into the nba by signing that qualifying offer you can't run out the clock on this suspension when you're on that qualifying offer salary you can't give yourself a chance to actually like get back into the nba now that especially if the plan was that he was going to cut a deal and there was going to be one that avoided jail time to be on a contract right now 
and to have that suspension be hopefully at least from his perspective not mine played out over the course of this year and to at least have a clean slate from that perspective going into next offseason the PR thing being a, a whole other can of worms I thought that they this was not the right strategy maybe there'll be something about this that I don't understand maybe they're just a conversation with charlotte where it's like hey don't accept the qualifying offer like we'll be a restricted agent next year we'll hope this blows over we'll sign i don't know maybe there's some some talks like that but just based on what i know it seems like that was the wrong decision not to just accept that qualifying offer when you had that option right okay let's move on yeah go ahead no no that's fine no that's fine let's move on to the bulls chicago five and six overall in the season but a positive net rating their plus 1.1 is good for 12th in the NBA. A lot of that fueled by a demolition of Charlotte. And then they also, that game when they originally were behind and then be, ended up being the Celtics by 18. Coincidentally, they are 18th in offense and 10th in defense. Raptor Nilo, pretty much in agreement on the Bulls. 37-38 wins. 26% chance of making the 18 playoffs on Raptor. 38% on Elo And... Two injury notes on the Bulls that I kind of find interesting. I mean, Lonzo's still out. But Kobe White and Andre Drummond, White's dealing with a left quad contusion, Drummond with a left shoulder sprain. The team said that both of them got clear MRIs, which, you know, that's good news. You you don't want anything to be wrong in MRI. But I haven't really seen anything definitive on a timeline return for either. And we know that they didn't play against Toronto on Sunday. And it sounds like Drummond continues to improve, but doesn't look like he's going to be back. So we'll have to see. The good news for the Bulls is that they've been competitive, even if they lost to both Boston and Toronto over the weekend. And you wanted to talk about the game they played against Toronto. This game kicked ass. I loved this game. And it was two teams, particularly this version of the Bulls, with no Drummond and, and frankly, no Levine either. And so you just had a lot of athleticism on the floor for the Bulls as well with guys like Javante Green and Derek Jones Jr. maybe in larger roles than would have been expected. And uh, Patrick Williams played a lot too. He had an interesting game. But the just the sheer amount of hustle and effort that was taking place in this game, nobody could hit a three for the Raptors. They were 10 out of 37. But this game saw 20 blocked shots, 10 for each team. Christian Coloco had six on his own. Uh, the Raptors had 11 steals as well. The teams combined for 38 offensive rebounds. Wow. Also, and so this was just crazy up and down. Great effort. You just had these crazy possessions where the ball was loose and flying around and bodies are hitting the floor and guys are jumping over each other and shots are being blocked at the rim and then you sprint the other way and miss a layup and then there's an offensive rebound and it just the amount of pressure was interesting the raptors held DeRozan to two field goal attempts in the first half he ended up actually getting to 20 points on only 12 shooting possessions but had five turnovers because they basically were double teaming him just about the moment he caught the ball no matter where he was on the floor particularly if Nikola Vucevic was not on the floor with him. And that was a fascinating strategic wrinkle, even more so than the usual crazy Raptors defense and trapping and running and flying around. There was the Raptors crowd booing Goran Dragic every time he touched the ball and (laughs) Dragic scoring 16 points in 21 minutes and just shutting them up left and right. He had a bunch of big threes in the third quarter as the Bulls got back into it but eventually the Raptors just had too much depth even without Pascal Siakam who's now out for a couple of weeks 
with an adductor groin strain fred van vliet was able to return from that low back strain he was the big star in the fourth ended up plus 27 with 30 points that hit some ridiculous shots like he he and this goes back to the 2019 finals like it seems like when he makes these shots at the end of the shot like he has he shoots with maybe the highest arc of anyone in the league on his jumpers and particularly if he's like inside the arc at all he's just it seems like sometimes at the end of the clock he's just throwing shit up there but it goes in way more often than you'd expect and it looks awesome he had 11 assists as well to go along with it his 30 points uh alex caruso well actually i was saying how, how they the raptors wore them down at the end they had three steals in the last five minutes all of them were pick sixes it was pretty close right until the end and then the raptors went to a 113 104 victory by shutting down the bulls forcing a bunch of turnovers getting even more offensive rebounds in the last five minutes or so of the game i mean you had chris boucher with six offensive rebounds thaddeus young had four achua had three I mean, the, their bench had 14 offensive rebounds just by itself um Otto Porter is back too. He didn't do much in this game. He played he played 19 minutes. He was in the closing group uh along with Christian Coloco who started his first game played 31 minutes. He had the six blocks. For the Bulls, uh, Patrick Williams had a weird game. He got blocked four times in maybe about 6 minutes by Coloco. He tried to dunk on him a couple of times and just got summarily rejected. Like Coloco just uh, yeah, I think he ended up with four of his six blocks on Patrick Williams. Patrick Williams did have a couple of big dunks in the second half where he didn't necessarily get Coloco, but he, he got a couple other ones. It ended up with 13 points, uh, was three of six from three, including a couple of aggressive plays. He had five offensive rebounds of his own. DeRozan only got up the seven, the nine shots. Uh, that was really interesting. Caruso had a hilarious game as well. One for 11 from the field. 0 for 6 from 3. They were letting him shoot a lot off the double teams of DeRozan. Three offensive rebounds, 11 total, 11 assists, two steals, two blocks, four points, plus 15. In a game, his team lost by nine, and he played 32 <laughs> minutes. So that meant they were... Yeah, that's, it, that's... it was just a crazy a crazy game. And Crusoe, it, it was just... He did still settle the team down with the 11 assists, and a lot of it was, you know, he's not like a great pick-and-roll operator, but... He's really one of the best in the league. Like Nick Batum is another one of these guys where if you throw it to him against a defense that's scrambling at all, he's able to put enough pressure on the defense, not turn it over, and then make the right play. Like that's how most of his 11 assists came was off of the Raptors scrambling around. Let's see, what else is there to say about this one? You know, Nick Vucevic also uh, had a really nice passing game with six assists. That was another aspect uh, of their game where they would, if DeRozan got double teamed out of, uh, initially they were only double teaming on pick and roll, then they just started double teaming him like literally anytime he got the ball. Even like if he dribbled the ball across half court, bringing the ball up, they double teamed him right at half court. It was crazy. Like, he actually turned it over a few times that way. Uh, but then they decided, hey, we're going to not try to throw it to whoever the role man is. Let's just throw it to Vucevic, who's standing on the wing. And then he can also make the play. So Bulls ended up with 27 assists on, on 40 field goals. Let's see. What else do I have? You know, Scotty Barnes, 8 and 19 from the field, 10 rebounds, 4 assists, had 19 points. He was had a nice little back and forth going with Patrick Williams. I think people forget that they were back-to-back number four overall picks from Florida State. They never actually played together, but I'm sure they know each other pretty well. They seemed like anytime they got matched up with each other, they seemed like extra motivated to attack each other. That was another like really cool aspect of this game. Uh, and, and Barnes even like got a couple of 
switches against Caruso and attacked him and scored over him after Caruso had been stoning everyone on their team in that situation. I have. A, I think that's well, all I got from this. I have, I have a couple more things, so I want to talk about the Raptors yeah. a bit. So Toronto yeah. overall six and four on the year, fourth in net rating plus seven point three per hundred possessions, sixth on offense, sixth on defense. Thirty, sorry, fifty two wins on Raptor. 50 wins on ELO, both of which are third in the East, and found a 90% chance of making the playoffs. And so you talked about Pascal Siakam. The phrasing that the Raptors have used is that he's going to be reevaluated in two weeks, but that reevaluation might not be like him coming back imminently. Hopefully he's back soon. Um, I just, just it's because- funny, though. Like, it almost, I mean, granted, this is they have a, a back-to-back against the Bulls tomorrow, too, and the Bulls were missing Levine, but, like, it almost seems like they don't, they don't miss him that much just because everyone else is the exact same size on the team. Like they don't really miss him defensively. Like, there are a few teams where you could take a guy who's like six, nine two thirty, has the length that Siakam does and his athleticism, take him off the floor and they wouldn't be hurt defensively. Like, obviously they need him as an offensive engine, but I, th- I thought that was really, it's fascinating that just in terms of like the style of play, like you didn't really see any difference without him. It is definitely bizarre. And um, the Raptors having, I mean, I brought this up before about how, like when they pull somebody from their starting lineup, usually due to, you know, sub patterns, but it could be due to injury too. They just have all of these other like size monsters that are out there. And you could say like, you know, a Chua and everything else. And so that's, it's something that makes the Raptors truly special and unusual. And so like, yeah, I mean, for this game, you know, so it's like, Okay, yeah, Van Vliet, Trent, OG, Barnes, and Kolka. Okay, you've still got plenty of size and everything else. Um, I don't want to dwell on this because I'm sure I'll bring it up incessantly throughout the season. The Raptors are sixth in offense despite being 24th in half-court first shot points per play, and that's because they run a ton in transition. And the anomalous thing so far this year is the offensive rebounding hasn't been as successful so far. Um, they have been converting them as well, but again, not a huge deal. Um yeah, the by the thing- way, th- just in terms of that fast break points per game, coming into today, the Raptors averaged 24 a game. Nobody else was above 20. Right. So that's that's completely ridiculous. And that's a part of how they can that's a huge part of how they can sustain all this type of stuff. And I, you know, we brought up about the things that stabilize. And generally speaking, free throw attempt rate is around five games. And the Raptors being 10th right now in free throw attempt rate which is exactly what they were two years ago but the raps were 24th last year that could be really positive for them now missing siakam for a couple weeks is going to be a problem but remember they missed siakam for the whole first section of last season and outside of him it's mostly a team effort and they also have you know the 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 balance of their passing in their offense where Van, Van Bleed has missed 40% of their season and they don't have a legit backup point guard and roster. Malachi Flynn got a DNP CD in a game that Fred Van Bleed did not play in. So that's pretty notable. Um, so yeah, I, I think that this is a very positive start for the Raptors. It sucks that Siakam's going to miss some time now, but the idea that they're just a legit, they're a legit team. I don't mean just as in only, but that they're, that they, they've established themselves as a team. That's I, I mean, I'm trying to remember, I think it was Matt Morris was talking about somebody that's they're just gonna they're just gonna crush a lot of teams by the the force that they play with. No, it's true, particularly bad teams like that victory that they had against the Spurs, where the Spurs like didn't play any of their guys, or that thirty point win against the Hawks, for example. Like the, there's it's definitely really rough for some of these teams that just are not ready to play that day or just you know, are not that good or are going to turn it over or whatever. Like it can, it can get late early against this 
Raptors team. I want to talk slightly more about Chicago too uh, before we wrap up uh, on them. No Zach Levine in this game. He did play in a back-to-back earlier this week, but he took the first one off in Toronto, you know, stayed home in Chicago where they're playing them again tomorrow night. But he's had comments about, you know, he's not attacking the rim as much. He's not trying to dunk on guys, talking about his longevity being important, that he doesn't feel the same explosiveness. You know, Bloggable wrote, wrote a nice piece about how he's having some of these blown tire finishes and his efficiency and usage is down by quite a bit, down to 25% usage. So this, it's a long deal with five years for Chicago with the Zach Levine potentially. And, you know, he was kind of on the level before the injury where it's like, okay, I guess you give it to him, particularly with the cap going up, but you know, probably wasn't a top 25 player in the NBA even before the injury. And of course he played on it all of last year. They were always, I guess, going to offer him this deal to bring him back. It felt like they didn't have much of a choice, but he definitely has not been where he was before the injury early in the season. And I hope that it will come back, but he also had the surgery at the end of the season, right? Like this is, and this isn't a thing where I always got to get his rhythm back. Like you can actually see the difference athletically, particularly on some of these finishes. Whereas like I would say Jamal Murray, for example, he's still getting his rhythm back, et cetera. But I haven't noticed that he's like way less explosive or something like that. Like he's for him, I think it's more an issue of like getting into great shape. And maybe that's, that'll be the case for Levine too. But then you also throw in that he missed a couple of games. Like the knee is clearly still bothering him. Like he's not, he doesn't feel a hundred percent right now. In addition to not feeling as strong, there's also apparently some pain and some swelling there. So it's as enjoyable as this Bulls team is to watch. And I had is a great story. Like he's maturing into a quality point guard option, getting better as a playmaker. And I think Vooch has been better this year so far. They're, their defense is forcing a bunch of turnovers again and and that and they're uh, getting every defensive rebound until they play the Raptors so they're and you know Drummond being out too doesn't help but they're 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 doing some of the things again like looking like a solidly competent basketball team in a way that they didn't towards the end of last season and Patrick Williams eh, we'll see about him but he's had some competent games recently but you know they're they're not going anywhere without a really really awesome Zach Levine being better than he was before this yeah Definitely concerning. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Let's go to their Central Division brethren, the Cleveland Cavaliers. The Cavs lost their first game on League Pass opening night against the Toronto Raptors by three in Toronto. And then they've won eight straight. They are second in the league in net rating, plus 11.6. 
Seventh in offense, number two in defense. Raptor and Elo, still a little bit skeptical. Uh, 51 wins would be fourth in the East and gives them about a 90% chance of making the playoffs. And good news from, I mean, there are a bunch of different good pieces of good, good news from the Cavs. But in that overtime thriller that we did a gamer on for over the course of the week, Donovan Mitchell sprained his left ankle. Darius Garland sprained his left knee. First piece of good news, they both missed only one game and then came back. In some ways, the even better piece of news is that they were missing both Mitchell and Garland and still beat Detroit on the road and did so handily. And yeah, 112-88, just one, complete destruction. And a, a game that I did not watch because Mitchell and Levert did, or Mitch, sorry, Mitchell and Garland did not play, Levert did, where the Cavs had 30 assists on 44 made baskets, but 21 of their 30 assists were by bench players. So that was, you know, six for Levert, three for everyone else. But then Love had 10, Jetty Osman had six, and Raul Neto, who was able to play after missing some time, he he did that. I mean, and that's a sign, you know, as somebody who was banging on Cleveland's over, the ability to win games without your without good players, and they just did a stretch without Garland, but then to win a game against Detroit without Garland and Mitchell, and then they got those guys back for the win over the Lakers on Sunday. Oh, man. Thank God I picked Cleveland's over. I just went and looked it up. I was like, man, I remember I was right on the borderline and I couldn't remember whether it was 47 and a half or 48 and a half. And I remember I'd picked them for 48 wins, uh, but I did in fact go over on them as well. Though I, was that one? Yeah, that was your number one best bet, yep. right? Was was the Cleveland over. It was. So yeah, and then they also had a very businesslike win against the Lakers, which I watched today. And like with the Pistons where you've got, some players out you go on the road no you just fucking take care of business the lakers come out russell westbrook's going crazy in the first half ad's going crazy in the first half lebron's playing really well and then they put a 12-0 run on him at the end of the third uh, dean wade had a couple of great plays right at the start of the fourth denying matt ryan for an entire possession and forcing a shot clock violation and then he got a passing lane steal for a dunk donovan mitchell was unbelievable this is one of the most efficient games that i can remember him having at one point he was eight and nine on twos and 11 to 12 from the line and so they just the lakers are a, you know, a team that is can get hot they have a bunch of big names their the crowd is getting into it at the crypt they're playing well and the cavaliers just you know business-like outlasted them took control in the third and the fourth ended up winning very comfortably, they're up 17 when the Lakers waved the white flag uh, with about four minutes to go because they have another game against Utah tomorrow, the dreaded Pacific time zone to mountain time zone back-to-back. A couple of other notes I, I thought from this one, uh, Jared Allen really owned the offensive glass in the fourth quarter uh, against Anthony Davis, and they held Anthony Davis to only two points in the second half. They put Evan Mobley on Russell Westbrook. That looked really good as well. They were very locked in, as I noted with Dean Wade, on Matt Ryan, not letting him get looks. Also, J.B. Bickerstaff had a great challenge where they called a transition take foul on Kevin Love after a turnover. Love reached in on LeBron, and it looked like from the sideline camera, I'm like, yeah, that's a take foul. So J.B. Bickerstaff challenged. I'm like, wait a minute, can you challenge that the judgment call of it being a take foul? I don't believe you can do that. But he challenged whether it was a foul at all. And it turned out that Love actually had just stripped LeBron cleanly and there wasn't even a foul in the play to be called a transition take foul. So that was a great challenge. Uh, ended up being a jump ball, uh, take away the Lakers possession and take away the free throw. That was a big play as the Lakers were trying to come back. Uh, they, Mitchell was going so well, the Lakers started blitzing him with AD. 
He did a great job getting off the ball. They move it around. They get a wide open corner three. And then unfortunately that missed. I think it was Dean Wade who missed it. But then Jared Allen just beasted someone for the offensive rebound after that. It, it, they just looked totally in control against a flawed team as they were against the Pistons. Just a business-like win for the Cavs. The only thing that I was a little concerned about was the Lakers went on an 8-0 run once they put their reserves in against the Cavs starters with four minutes left. And Jared Allen, like the spacing was pretty compacted, like the running pick and roll with him and Evan Mobley is in the dunker spot. And, you know, it's like Wendy and Gabriel or whatever in the game for the Lakers and, you know, Juan Toscano Anderson and Max Christie, actually not a terrible defensive group, but whatever. Uh, so they threw it to Jared Allen three times in a row and he flubbed three finishes in a row. He traveled, missed a couple of layups. And I do like Jared Allen is a really good player, but I also have seen like a few of these kind of nervous flashes from him at times. Like I saw in that Boston game too, that just, let's just keep an eye on his potential to do stuff like that. As we really get into the playoff crucible where I think the Cavs will feature prominently if they can stay healthy. But then Donovan Mitchell calls up Allen for a screen. They've cut it to nine and he's like, well, I'm not going to fuck around with this pick and roll. He just rejects the screen blows by Max Christie and gets an and one to totally ice the game. So I thought it was good recognition by Mitchell to be like, all right, this isn't working, throwing it to Jared Allen. So I'm just going to use his gravity and reject the screen and, and get to the basket. Um, one thing we should probably talk about just a little bit is how sustainable their offense is. They're shooting the ball really, really well from three right now. Sure. And it is important to note that you have, you know, like that is something that stabilizes far earlier than whether an opponent is making shots. You know, so they're right now, Cleveland is eighth in terms of three point percentage. And they're, they're also fourth at the rim. Are they? No, I've got them at, uh, I've got them at third right now. Oh, Oh, I, I maybe. I just let me refresh. Sometimes I mess, I pick frequency instead of accuracy. Yeah, it's it, they're, now, eight, they're they're eighth in accuracy. Ah, okay. Wait, hold on. Maybe that's maybe it's updated after today. Hold on, sorry. This is this is fascinating stuff here. Oh yeah, okay. I guess I was just looking at before today's game when they didn't shoot it that way. All right. Anyway, well, they, I guess that shows you that uh, maybe their number three ranking was unsustainable because it didn't sustain after one more game. Uh, but yeah, I don't know if I see these guys as like. Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they are. Maybe they are a high thirty, uh, high thirties three point shooting team. You know, Garland. The real, I think the really wild card is Mitchell. Like he's shooting it really well so far. So like, and Love has been like crazy good. So Garland, you know, I trust him. Love is he going to be you know low forties or high thirties? Mitchell, like, is he going to keep hitting these off the dribble? Like Lavert's shooting really well from three two, even though he hasn't been able to make a two. Wade has been shooting really well. So they do have some guys who might be a little above their heads. Like I wasn't thinking of this team coming into the season as like some great three-point shooting team, but maybe I just didn't think about it enough. Is there anything else that sticks out in their statistical resume with this eight and one start that might be unsustainable? They're fourth in shooting at the rim. That's one where I think, um, you know, with Allen and Mobley, that's pretty good. Sixth lowest opponent three-point shooting and sixth lowest opponent long two shooting. You expect those yeah. to regress to the mean at least a little bit, but I mean, they're starting from being second in the league so i mean and and they have possibility of ending up there but like i I think the other stuff is pretty good yeah and they are uh, as you mentioned second in defense not second in defense oh no detroit pistons two and eight 30th in the nba negative 12.6 net rating they are 26th on offense which is about i think where most of us had them but i thought they could actually be respectable defensively and so far that has not been the case they are 30th they got of crooked number in that defensive rating 120.1 
projecting for 22 wins per Raptor, 25 per ELO. That is not where Troy Weaver and Dwayne Casey, I think, thought this team would be, would want this team to be, particularly once they made the trade for Boyan Bidanovich, which ostensibly shored up their weakness. But I guess the way that they've been shooting overall as a team and, and some of the bench, it's like, holy shit, imagine where they'd be without Bogdanovich, who's actually been awesome so far shooting the ball, and they're still not that great offense. And then obviously the defense uh, has been struggling. So what sticks out from these guys and why they're struggling so much? Well, I want to start with a positive, and that is the Pistons have scored reasonably well. They've been above, or right around league average when Cade Cunningham has been on the floor. 112.4 offensive rating in 712 possessions, 46 percentile. And what that group, or what those lineups are doing well is, the best thing is they're getting to the line. 24.3 free throw attempts per 100 possessions is strong. And then if you switch it to just their primary starting five, that goes into the 100th percentile, 27.1 per 100 possessions. Isaiah Stewart, Sadiq Bay, and then they're getting some from Cade and Boyan and, and Ivy. So that that's really, really positive for them. On top of that, the Cunningham lineups are doing a good job not turning the ball over. This came up a little bit when we were talking about the Hawks. Not that the Hawks functionality offensively is similar with Cade, is similar to with Trey, but the idea that if the ball's in somebody's hands more often, you're going to have fewer turnovers. That's that's often something that happens. Um, and then I had been fixated on this last year because it was this idea of potentially Cade and Luca parallels and everything else was that the Pistons didn't really run a lot last year when Cade was on the floor. And I would say that's mostly true. They are in the half, they're, they're starting possessions in half-court offense, 80% of Cade's possessions. Like, that that's 70% for the Raptors, but the Raptors are the anomaly of all anomalies there. You wish that number would be a little lower, that they were getting more in transition. But they have been running pretty well in off of live rebounds, so kind of a quirk with some of the Cade and Ivy minutes. So I think that, the, I think that some of that, when you consider, you know, they're— Lineups aren't perfect. You know, they're starting a rookie next to Cade on the on the guard line. And then Isaiah Stewart's a talented offensive player, but they're not like world beaters on that end. They don't have a they don't have everything figured out. To be around league average on offense is pretty positive. Yeah, and I think it's also worth noting that one of our criticisms of I don't know whether you want to say this is Dwayne Casey or Troy Weaver, probably more Troy Weaver of you know how miserable their bench groups are, which we're gonna talk about in a second, is they play a lot of these all bench ish groups, and therefore, when Kate is out there, it's generally with most of the Pistons' other best players. So he's at least avoiding being dragged down by some of these awful bench guys. For sure. And I don't want to dwell on the bench because we've talked about it before, but just to mention it, when Kate Cunningham is off the floor, the Pistons are being outscored by 30 points per 100 possessions. That's bad. What is he, DeJounte Murray? <laughs> Uh, but instead, the bad thing that I do want to talk about is that Pistons defense. It was stunning to be the first. I saw it early in the week, and I'm like, okay, I want to do some digging on this. And so the first thing you would think of if a defense is meaningfully worse through 10 games is, oh, their opponent's shooting luck is horrendous. Like, the opponents are making everything. Nope. Opponents are making 35% of their threes. That's actually a little worse than the median, which is 36%. They are getting some bad luck on long twos but generally speaking that and it's not like they're super duper far from the median there so it's not it's not as much shooting like instead it's opponent shot locations something that i i get interested in a lot the oh oh sorry i forgot to mention this not only are the 
Pistons worst in defense. It's how far they're worst They're but it's gotten a little bit better now. The margin tightened with the Spurs. So they're a point and a half per hundred possessions worse than the Spurs, but then they're almost four points per hundred 100 worse than everyone else. So this is, this has been really bad relative to the rest of the league, but going back to shot locations, the Pistons 26th in opponent location effective field goal percentage and 27th in actual opponent effective field goal percentage. And a part of that is that they're giving up 37% of shots at the rim, which is really bad, and about 9% as corner threes. What compounds that is, and maybe if you have a little bit more Nerlens Noel, but the intention is not to play Noel, it's just that he's been in because of Duran being out, is... They're giving yeah. up, and Duran has struggled quite a bit. For sure, way. he's out now with the with the ankle. But I think you kind of you miss it. Like he's kind of kind of James Wiseman-y, but he's just not in that same role. He's just on this Pistons second unit, and so he's just he's lost for sure. Like he'll make some big plays that look really good. And you're like, oh man, this guy here he comes. But then you know the nuts and bolts of where he is as like a defensive center is just not where he needs to be. But he, he's 18. That's not a shock. It's not, it's not a shock, and, and we'll see where he is a little while from now. But, yeah, the combination of being giving up a ton of shots to the rim and not stopping them at all, that's bad. And they're not the Pistons aren't making up for that horrendous 27th in opponent effective field goal percentage anywhere else. They're not forcing a ton of turnovers. They've been really bad on the defensive glass, and they're fouling, you know, they're below league average. They're not horrendously there. So it's like, they don't have a calling card. They don't really have anything going. And, you know, you look at the lineups and they don't have a ton of really good defenders. And, you know, it's funny because Noel was a part of it last year, even though he was hurt about the, like, you know, the Knicks and they had that backstop of 48 minutes of, of good rim protection and everything else. It's like, they don't have any of those sort of calling cards yet. And one of the concerns, like I brought up the turnover rate outside of Nerlens Noel, who's barely played, Jaden Ivey has the highest steal rate on this team at 1.6 per 36 minutes. You'd like to have a few more defensive playmakers in this group, but they have some guys who could eventually, ideally, establish themselves there. They just absolutely have not yet. Yeah, and I, I looked it up as you were talking. The That bad opponent shooting at the rim, bad for Detroit. Isaiah Stewart, and this is a noisy stat, obviously, but Isaiah Stewart has been, when he's defended shots around the basket, he's been surprisingly good for a guy who was supposed to lack explosion coming out of college he's been in the low 50s his first couple of years that number is 68 percent so far this year and yeah they just have not been able to protect the basket at all let's get to indiana now really exciting interesting team that i'm hoping to lock in on a little bit more this week they are four and five only a negative 1.1 net rating that's 17th in the nba Offense, they are 11th, 114.5. Defense, they are 25th. Eh, okay, it's not, not a surprise there, 115.6. Projecting for 34 wins for Raptor. That'd be the 12th seed. 32 per ELO, also the 12th seed. Actually, 17% chance the playoffs per Raptor, 16% per ELO. Of course, there's thoughts that there could be a fire sale coming. Quick news update before we get into some analysis. Chris Duarte, grade two left ankle sprain. He's going to miss four to six weeks. And we'll see whether that leads to Ben Matherin being in the starting lineup. Now he did start the second half. So let's talk about why these guys have been pretty good on the offensive end. The biggest kind of single force that has led to it, and this is not something I anticipated before the season, though when you kind of think about some of their lineups that play, is the Pacers have been dominant on the offensive glass. After today's action, they bumped down to fifth 
in offensive rebound rate, 31.5% of their own misses. That's only behind the Houston Rockets, the New Orleans Pelicans, the Utah Jazz, and the Memphis Grizzlies. And the, those teams, it's kind of less surprising that they're that they're in that area than the Indiana Pacers, who we talked about how they have like no forwards. But Isaiah Jackson, Jalen Smith, Terry Taylor all have offensive rebound rates, oh, offensive rebound percentages over seven, and then everyone else but the like the small small guards are helping out. So that's really positive, and it's you know it's something that you do as a concerted effort. And oftentimes the trade off, no, not distinctly, not always, is that you're giving up a fair amount in transition. And on that note, you know, it's kind of the, I like to think about the corollary of this is the percentage of opponent possessions in the half court. And are you giving, you know, are you giving up anything there? And Indiana's around, you know, around league average there. The opponents are scoring a shitload on those possessions, but they're not getting there a ridiculous amount. Um, and then something else that I'd wanted to track all year is I, I talked about this with Caitlin Cooper. You talked about this with Caitlin Cooper is the only way that this, or Pacers offense was going to make sense was if they actually ran. Yeah, this is and, awesome. And they are. Like, this is a Carl, yeah. Carlisle team. They're eighth in half-court frequency, the purport, you know, the proportion of, of shots in the half-court. And that, that's eighth in the positive direction, not eighth in the negative direction. And they need that because Indiana is tw- actually 24th in first-shot half-court offensive rating, but they're getting a ton of offensive rebounds and everything else, so that's kind of how it's working out. Um, they're also getting to the line pretty well, and their best free throw drawer so far is actually Ben Ben Mathur, and he's at about eight per thirty six minutes. Miles Turner's at seven and a half. Yeah, um, that's really interesting. I want to lock in on that. I never thought of Miles Turner as like some big free throw drawer. Now, yeah. granted, he hasn't played the whole season yet. But yeah, and so that that's led to in in part with the transition play. The Pacers are eighth in offensive location to of effective field goal percentage, taking a ton of threes. They're getting a fair amount of shots in the restricted area. And they've been below average in making shots from every zone other than above the break threes, but they've been, they've been successful, you know, they've taken shots in the right places. And one of the big surprises to me, I was like, Oh, you know, they're, they're 11th in offense. This is, you know, the Tyrese Halliburton show. And he has been, I I mean, he has been good this year, but the Pacers offensive rating is about the same. It's about a 115 when Halliburton's on and Halliburton's off full credit to TJ McConnell and this overall kind of like backup group that they've been better offensively. McConnell is another guy who really helps juice the pace. Oh yes. Yeah. And, and something that isn't a huge surprise. um, I, I thought back to John wall back when he was on the wizards in this is that the Halliburton minutes have a really high three point volume. And I think he is good at generating those shots, whether it's in transition or in the half court. And those are coming not from the rim, but they're coming from floater range and from long two. So that means you're getting into that healthy shot mix. I talked about their location, effective field goal percentage. And something to keep an eye on now that Matherin, I mean, you wish it wasn't because Duarte had a great two ankle sprain, but how are, how are the Pacers playing when those two are together? Positive net rating, plus 3.6 and 314 possessions. They've been 89th percentile on offense and pretty still pretty bad on defense. But I would say this has been positive so far, depending on what you're going to prioritize for the Pacers. Yeah, the other thing that's interesting about Indiana is that they are allowing the least number of points in the paint per game. They're first in the NBA in that category. 41 points in the paint per game is all they allow. And yet they are still 26th on defense. And so why is that? So they are 27th in e-field goal percentage, 25th in location e-field goal percentage. They are still allowing a fair number of shots at the rim, but very few from floater range, and they're giving up a bunch of threes 
as well. And then the other problem is just that opponents are shooting really well against them everywhere outside of at the rim where they're second in defending the rim 60.5 percent but they are giving up 41 percent from downtown and that's not going to sustain like they're actually they should get a little bit better if they can maintain this same defensive shot mix going forward all right let's do one more team here and that will be well or, or, do you, or do you want me yeah. to can i talk about the uh the nick sixers game can we make that the last oh yeah that's a good one let's yeah let's let's end on that and then that'll give us just a few teams for tomorrow still where we catch up on news as well sure uh you want to give the nick stats because i'm just about to talk for a while desperately yes uh four and five negative 1.2 net rating 19th in the nba they are 17th on offense 19th on defense the latter is probably more disappointing there are a few things i'm sure we'll get into about why their defense has struggled some they project to be ninth in the east with a 38 and 44 record per raptor 40 and 42 also ninth per elo 34 percent chance of the playoffs for raptor 47 percent per elo mitchell robinson did not play against the celtics a game in which the celtics went 27 of 51 from three and scored a buck 33 against this Knicks team. Uh, he's going to miss at least a week new due to this sore knee uh, that he just had to leave that, that game against Friday or against the Sixers on Friday that you're going to talk about. So uh, Quentin Grimes has been kind of in kind of out. He was going to start. He's still, he's questionable. Fournier came off the bench in the Celtics game and they went with reddish instead because Grimes didn't play on the back to back. So that's about it, I think, on injury news for them. What do you got on this Knicks-Sixers game? It was definitely – a part of the reason I wanted to watch it is we knew it would be anomalous because it was the first game without James Harden, who I'll talk about his injury stuff in a bit. But also, Joel Embiid ended up not playing. It does look like Embiid will return on Monday against the Phoenix Suns, at least as we're recording this podcast. And unlike in that Wizards game that we talked about last week, Doc Rivers decided to start a center, and that was Montrez Harrell. And Harrell played 29 minutes. I thought he did a relatively decent job, but part of the reason I was incredibly pissed off at the Knicks in the first quarter, they only scored 21 points. It was 22 to 21 after one quarter because they weren't attacking a Philly defense that had a lot of places worth attacking. So the starting lineup was Tyrese Maxey, D'Anthony Melton, who was back after his after his back issues, Tobias Harris, P.J. Tucker, and Montrezl Harrell. So it's like, oh, okay. So you have Tyrese Maxey and Tobias Harris, limited players, and they put Melton on Jalen Brunson. So it's like, okay, you don't do that. Well, maybe you try a guard-guard screen, or maybe you try initiating with someone else, and you try to get something going. Nope, they just, they just didn't really do a whole heck of a lot of that in the early going. They got to it better. They actually had a really nice... R.J. Barrett, Isaiah Hartenstein pick and roll that worked that that got it. They got a nice bounce pass and got some stuff, but generally they weren't doing it enough. And Maxi went wild for stretches of this game. Ended up with 31 points on I think it was like 33 shooting possessions, and along with seven assists and four turnovers. Like it was really his show. And there were times that that looked great, but then there were other times that he got pretty hero tastic and it was frustrating because they just, he was just settling for like pull up twos and he looked like or pull up threes and he looked tired and so is that but what i think some people and it's going to be interesting with the injury we'll see how long it is to mitchell robinson will take from this game the thing that like some knicks fans were sizzling over was due to mitchell robinson's issue we wondered how tibbs was going to manage the rotation in the fourth quarter ended up going to a Toppin-Randall combo, which is something that Tibbs has basically avoided for the entirety of their their time together. And it went well. 
like they were able to defend enough and they were able to get some really good stuff on offense and they had, you know, Toppin was shooting was he was taking threes and he made half of them. He was three six. But part of it for me, like I wanted to caution that I think there's a little bit of fool's gold in there where they were defending well against some really, really limited lineups, including some of the non maxi groups, which were not exactly the most threatening. You had Shake Milton out there and, you know, Niang had was creating a little bit and everything else. So that was, you know, I'm not thinking it's dynamite for them necessarily moving forward, but it's something you can go to. And the idea that especially when you don't have Mitchell Robinson available or you don't have Hartenstein, should he miss time, that you have something that you can turn to. Something else that I wanted to keep an eye on was the shaking up of the offensive possessions with both Harden and eventually finding out that Embiid was out. It's like, well, it's not only Maxi getting a ton, but where where the secondary playmaking responsibility is going to go and everything else. And a lot of that went to DeAnthony Melton, and I thought he did a reasonably good job. You know, he wasn't great at shooting, which has not always been a Melton strength. He was concerningly one of seven on twos. But nine assists, I thought he had some pretty good passes. And then Tobias Harris did step into a larger role, nine of 15 from the field, four assists, two turnovers, and his 37 minutes of action. So I'm not super optimistic that the Sixers will be great offensively in all 48 minutes if they were without Harden and Embiid. But the idea that if they have Maxi and Embiid, I think they can piece a lot of that stuff together. Well, consider that up until they traded for James Harden, they were a totally respectable team. Yeah. A year ago and now they have more depth than they had at that time with tucker and presumably maxi being more empowered and even better so they should be able to and they got daniel house now as well the some of the guys who were massive rotation pieces now are more in bit roles they got melton now too so they should be able to withstand this just fine without harden and still be over 500 but of course that was Joel Embiid, who was an MVP candidate. And remember before he really was able to round into form a year ago, and, you know, missing all this time due to an illness, Doc says he's 75% chance to play tomorrow. That's not amazing. And it certainly is not going to help him get into shape when he already you know, wasn't in the type of shape he wanted to be in due to this plantar fasciitis in the off season. Uh, but we'll see, you know, I mean, I think it's going to, obviously if you get MVP Joel, like they they have more than enough to win on most nights even without Harden, to be sure. And this might even be a chance for Maxi to be empowered even further because I, I do want to see what he can do. He can, hopefully he can get better as a passer. And that's probably the biggest thing that he needs to do. Um, I have a couple any, other... Anything else from this game? Yeah, I have a couple other things. So you and I both praised the Knicks effusively for running aggressively after live rebounds in that game against the Cavs, which was really fun. Cleveland ended up coming out on top. It was less aggressive in the Philly game. They, it was 37.5% of their defensive rebounds turned in, turned into a transition opportunity. Some of that was Philly getting back, which, you know, that will be a little bit better with James Harden unavailable. But I also thought they weren't pushing as hard, and especially in the starting five, like they were settling a little bit more. And then I mentioned that Montrezl Harrell started, but Montrezl Harrell did not close, in part because Paul Reed was outplaying him in my eyes, and Paul Reed had six steals in 18 minutes was a was a part of some of those lineups where they were getting the feedback loops they're getting steals they're getting in transition so they were able to defend in the half court and i also had a frustration that i didn't think whether you want to blame doc rivers you want to blame tyrese maxi the the sixers just weren't doing enough to create good shots particularly when they were going against the top and randall combination 
where you know you can get somebody get somebody on the floor. You beat the first line of defense, and the help defenders are limited. And if you have a little bit of movement around on, on off that back line, then you could get somebody on a pass or something else if they overreact to it. I I just didn't love the process from Philly offensively, and I thought that was a big part of why they ended up losing this game. The Knicks went up four with a minute to go, and then Doc was going offense defense with Thibel, but he committed a foul on R.J. Barrett, so that negates some of it. And it looked like Philly was going to be, they were going to be a little bit toast. They were down four with a bit to go. But then PJ Tucker split free throws and they got the offensive rebound. And I got frustrated because Tyrese Maxey, like, so you get an offensive rebound. He actually rushed the three. And it's weird in that circumstance because you are simultaneously behind, but also like that's going to be your best opportunity to actually get a good shot. And so Maxey rushed that three. And then at that point, it kind of, it kind of bounced back and forth. Uh, Niang, like the Knicks were like, it ended up being a one score game, but Niang hit a three down four. And so like, I, I, it, it, technically speaking, Melton did get a chance with a shot, but it wasn't that competitive. So I thought it was good for the Knicks to come away with a win to end up four and four at the, and, and so like, yeah, that was, that was good for them, but it wasn't like an incredible performance. And for Philly is the kind of the, the mix of stories with their offense and defense, the other thing that I wanted to just uh, just because now they're not going to play together for a while, I wanted to look at the minutes when Tyrese Maxey and James Harden played together without Joel Embiid because those can be some okay. some bizarre lineups and they were about even in net rating because they had an unbelievably great offense and an unbelievably bad defense. So they were 95th percent. Well, you know, it was about a 122 offensive and defensive rating. That is extreme. Um, those groups didn't get to the line at all, but they made 45% of their threes and they were 42% of their shot attempts. And notable though, I talked about how the net rating was close to even the most used of those combinations was Maxi Harden, DeAnthony Melton, Tobias Harris, and PJ Tucker. That group played 90, 93 of the 214 possessions together and had a plus 22 net rating. So that group did really well. And We'll see what eventually when they get the team back to full strength if they actually end up going to that a little bit. But it was I remember because I had watched a couple of those Sixers games that those lineups were really fun and the statistics bear that out. Yeah, it would have been interesting to see a, a longer period with, without Embiid. Uh, Philly, for their part, f- still four and six. Net rating is zero point one, fourteenth in the NBA. They are tenth on offense, twenty first on defense. They project for the sixth seed in the East at forty six wins per Raptor, forty five wins per elo that would also be the six seed 79 and 72 percent chance at the playoffs respectively and you know i guess we should probably since we're doing the games we were also going to talk about the magic game against golden state that we did for the strategy stream on thursday so we might as well just do that now so it's not too stale when you listen to it the magic what are their fundamentals mr larue the orlando magic are two and eight negative 3.1 net rating and negative 3.1 actually like they're under the magic are underperforming their net rating by the most in the nba as we record this podcast two full wins below expected um 24th on offense 16th on defense both raptor and elo project they will finish with 26 wins which will be second to last in the east and two and four percent chances of making the final eight respectively and yeah, this was a game, you know, we put it on and you and I were both extremely excited to to do a Palo Bancaro game to potentially see, you know, kind of where this is shake out. I don't think I expected it to be as competitive as evenly matched a game. And that led to us having pretty damn fun crunch time. Yeah, it ended up 130-129 as 
Clay Thompson missed a leaner that could have won it at the end for Golden State. And we don't need to get into the minutia of the end of the game, but Jalen Suggs hit a massive three to put him up one, or I'm sorry, to put him up four uh, inside of a minute to go, and then came back and got a beautiful steal switching off uh, on a peel onto Draymond Green after he had been beaten in the backcourt. And uh, he was fantastic. 26 points, a career game for him. 9-17 from the field with 9 assists and 4 steals. Just hit his overall pressure. Steph Curry had a great game, to be sure. Uh, but I really, you know, Steph Curry is going to have a great game. Like, if you are a guard, you are not going to stop Steph Curry. Like, you're going to have to switch. They eventually just went to switching Wendell Carter on to Curry in some of these pick-and-roll actions. So you're, you're going to get switched off of him. He's going to get a screen if you're in conventional pick and roll defense. He's going to hit shots. You just have to like keep competing and keep competing. And he got a huge deflection on Curry inside of five minutes to go that led to a pick six bucket. And then he got that huge steal on Green as well. And it also was pretty aggressive driving to the basket. He had a couple of ugly flubs early, but ended up with 11 free throw attempts. Magic overall got to the line 46 times. In this game, in part because the Warriors just could not fucking stop fouling. Um, yeah, a lot, a lot of early yeah. fouls, which led to the Magic getting in the bonus early and getting free throws yeah. on non-shooting fouls. Which, of course, you guys know me. I talked about a lot on the NBA Strategy Stream. Oh, by the way, NBA Strategy Stream, we're back on Monday, doing an, an awesome game. Celtics Grizzlies should be a ton of fun. That game starts at nine Eastern, six Pacific. We're really excited about that. But another big story in Warriors magic for me was was Paolo Bancaro and he had this really challenging first half one of six from the field primarily guarded actually we thought we thought we were in the preview we thought like pregame we talked about Bancaro versus Draymond Green it was actually Andrew Wiggins that typically had the primary assignment and I thought Bancaro was having some trouble getting to his spots had a few turnovers but then he put it together and had a legitimately strong second half yeah I really thought going against Wiggins and Draymond and Kevon Looney, that is a championship-tested defensive front court, and definitely Paolo struggled. And we talked during the game about the idea that Paolo has these great physical gifts and also has a, a really high skill level as well. But he's not—he doesn't quite have an understanding of exactly what's going to work against just NBA athletes in general, but then also specifically against that night's uh, opponent because it, he has this really good skill level. But he also has great physical tools. And so is he going to try to overpower guys? Is he going to try to beat him with quickness? Is he going to try to beat him with his fakes and his footworks? He's got so many tools in the tool chest. And so I think he's he doesn't have a great understanding yet for, all right, when have I really beaten this guy and I can just shoot the shot? And when is do I know that my strength and power is going to be enough? When do I know that I can just jump over these guys? When do I know if I have enough separation? And considering that... It, these aspects of his game are clearly quite nascent for him to put up the stats that he has over the course of, of this early season. It has been pretty incredibly at 30 and 15 uh, against the Sacramento Kings in a wild yarn of a league pass game on Saturday after this. But uh, just so we have him here, Danny, what are uh, Bancaro's stats for the season? Basic counting stats, 23 points, eight and a half rebounds, 3.6 assists per game. If you want the basic efficiency stats, 34% true shooting, 30 usage. Wait, 34% true shooting? 54. Yeah, 54, okay. 54% on 30 usage, which is yeah. astonishing for, for a rookie. And it was also um, 
there were time like Franz Wagner wasn't super involved in the first half, but then he ended up having some really big finishes late. He has kind of this like sweeping layup that ended up working really well. Had a couple kind of passes. Dude, dude he will he will challenge anybody. Like anybody. it's awesome. Like he's huge. He's got great footwork to step around guys. He gets great extension. Like, and honestly, I like him when he's going downhill at a big. There's not that many other guys I would rather have in the NBA. You know, unless you're talking about just like a crazy, like Giannis type of athlete, but he's just huge and he's got great footwork and he's got great touch and he, left hand, right hand gets great extension, good touch off the glass as well. Like it's really very impressive when he gets downhill and I, I wish they would use him even more and run stuff through him even more in crunch time. That's been a complaint going back to last year. And then it was so far before the ending, but one of the huge stories in the early part of this game, Chumo Keke came off the bench and just was drilling threes. He had 12 yeah. points. He had 12 points in the first quarter, but I think he had like nine points in the first two minutes he was on the floor. Yeah, and it looked like they were about to get blown out of the gym a couple of times in this game. It was like 25 to 12, and Okeke came in, coincidentally, right as the Warriors bench players came in, and uh, really got them back into contact in the first. We also wondered how Jamal Mosley was going to run his rotation because not only is Marco Fultz still not back from this fractured big toe, but concerningly, Cole Anthony has an oblique injury and he's expected to be out per Kobe Price until at least Thanksgiving. So the Magic are extremely shorthanded on the guard line. They started Suggs and then I guess you would say Wagner started the two and then they played RJ Hampton, who remember they don't they don't have enough faith in that they declined his option. And then Kevon Harris played 21 minutes, and then they tried a little bit of Caleb Houston. And then notably, Mo Bamba only played six minutes. He didn't really do anything of note. Yeah, they basically played Houston rather than him in the second, the second half, half to go to go super small with a, a really interesting lineup. Um, actually, I want to talk about Harris. Uh, you know, sure. he had four offensive rebounds, 12 points plus 12 in the game, and also hit two of three from downtown. And he's he's got a lot of bounce too. Like he just caught a, a pass in the dunker spot along the baseline and just went up and crushed it with two hands. And remember his story, he started off playing in summer league with the wolves. And then the magic signed him to a two way after that. And like, he's, he's quite rugged as well. He gives a, a good defensive element, you know, kind of just a burly guard, you know, probably not a point guard really, but if he can make shots, like he's definitely going to have a career because he is a very, very good athlete uh, and strong from the guard position. We actually saw. And we haven't of, even we haven't even talked about Bull Bull and his his great season yet either. That'll have to probably wait for a, another time. Yeah. And Bull Bull got a start in this game. He only did play 19 minutes. Had a completely ridiculous block. We I think you said on the live call it was like he blocked it with his elbow, which was which was awesome. Had a couple of nice finishes. And then Wendell Carter, like it, he's it's a weird version of it. Like we're throughout the season, I was like, well, you know, he's the footwork on his shots, he's taking them with the right aggressiveness. And it's like, well, is it going to fall? And like, like so many role players, as Warriors fans complain about a lot over the years, he made them against the Warriors thirty percent on threes on the season. Warriors fans like Bob Fitzgerald. No comment. I've made that comment previously, um, but he made two of four in this game along with so the the magic overall 13 of 30 though that was far fewer than the warriors 43 attempts and 19 makes so yeah i thought this was a a very positive game for the magic they got good contributions from almost everybody jalen suggs having those two huge steals and two huge threes at the end was extremely memorable but then ben having a strong second half wagner helping take them down the stretch like 
I, I, I've been talking about it a fair amount, but like, I just love watching this Magic team. They're a lot of fun. Yeah, and Bull Bull, just so we have it here, 75% true shooting on the season on 17 usage, and he's really doing it all with like great finishing around the rim, and he is blocking 9.2% of opponent twos so far, and he's actually been rebounding as well on the defensive end. And he just, he, he looks like a real basketball player out there. He's not just getting like overwhelmed physically the way we'd see early on. So I, I hope he can stay healthy and uh, I hope that the magic can get some of their guards back like Fultz and Harris. I think they'll, if they can actually get decent offensive play, you know, just kind of below average-ish offensive play from the guard line, like their bench has been killing them. It's just uh, the Warriors bench is even worse. <laughs> so the, the bench actually came back on, on the Warriors bench. But if they can just get like semi-competent guard play, I think these guys could be, I mean, I don't know if they're going to like compete for the play-in or anything, but I think they'll be a lot more respectable than some of these other teams well, we thought were going to be really bad coming into the year. And you combine that with the Magic underperforming their point differential by the most in the league. And I actually could argue that it's kind of a bizarro version of what's happening with a few other teams where this is actually positioning them pretty well for what should be happening, where... They're probably, hopefully they're going to be, you know, like, unless you can make it all the way, like, into the play and ideally the playoffs, like, you kind of want to be a little further away because then you can maximize your draft position and the Magic, I I really like their foundation. Like, I think they have a lot of good young players. I'm still working my way through how I feel about Jamal Mosley as a coach, but they have a lot of, they have a lot of talent. They have guys that, even if it seems like they're duplicative height-wise, they have different skill sets, they're playing well, and that should continue to improve with time. And you and I won't know the players in this draft for another, I don't know, six months. But if they can get a high-level contributor, somebody who has a real ceiling, like whether that ends up being Scoot or Wembenyama or somebody else that and they end up really liking, they could end up like kind of benefiting from a non-representatively worse year relative to their talent level, which like that's actually in a weird way kind of what you want as the last year before you jump. All right, well, we have three teams left here that we will save for tomorrow. Wizards, Heat, and Bucks. But this is good. We got through 12 teams. It took us about two hours of recording time, a little bit less once it gets edited. But thanks so much for being a subscriber. If you're on the public pod, please consider subscribing as well. Not only do you get Danny and me five days per week, you also will get John Hollinger once a week with me, all of this ad-free. And you will get Dan Feldman's Daily Dunks five days a week in either written form in your email box or in a short digestible podcast just to keep up on the day's news real quickly and also get links to the best and most important written work around the NBA. Thanks so much for being a subscriber or at least a listener, and we'll talk to you all next time. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.